The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone and happy Father's Day to those of you who have <laughs> undertaken that responsibility. We're going to talk tonight about spiritual friendship and certainly being a father, being a parent, is a kind of uh, very intense spiritual community and really the place to practice spiritual friendship. Some of you probably know the story where that term gets talked about in the suttas and the discourses of the Buddha, a time when Ananda the Buddhist cousin and attendant for several decades. He was much younger than the Buddha. And early on in the Buddhist teaching time, he taught for 45 years before he died. And the early part of that, he had a lot of different attendants. But then the last 30 years or so, I forget how many decades, Ananda was his attendant. And uh, he was sort of, at times, at least the fall guy in a lot of the stories. Um, and this is one of those examples where the Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, you know, they're just, you can imagine them hanging out in the forest and maybe Ananda's feeling quite inspired by the, you know, the community of monks and nuns that he's connected with and the Buddha himself as a friend, a spiritual friend, and, and kind of blurts out, you know, it seems like spiritual friendship is half of the holy life, half of the spiritual life. It seems a reasonable thing to say. And the Buddha says, oh no, don't say that, Ananda. <laughs> it's not half of the holy life. It's all of the holy life. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the, the holy life. When a practitioner has admirable people as friends, companions, and comrades, he or she can be expected to develop and pursue the noble eightfold path, the spiritual life. So it really begs the question, well, what do we mean by spiritual friendship? And I was reading recently an article that you could, if you want, download off the internet uh, by Ajahn Amaral, a well-known Western Buddhist monk. And uh, it, the article is called Spiritual Friendship. So if you Google that and then Amaro, A-M-A-R-O, it's the name of this monk. You'd get this article, and it's a talk he gave a while back at Amaravati, uh, one of the large Western Buddhist monasteries, this one in England. And uh, he uh, defines or he explains the translation of Kalyanamita, this word spiritual friendship, it kind of has two meanings. On the surface, it, it just means a friend a spiritual friend, a friend that um, is involved in the spiritual practice, who can support you in your practice, maybe at times is able to be a teacher for you. So it doesn't mean it can't be your good friend or can't even, it could even be your child sometimes, of course, is a teacher for us. So it isn't always a teacher in a, in a classic sense, you know, somebody who teaches professionally, let's say. But there's another meaning, and maybe even a more important meaning for the word Kalyanamita, in the way, and the Buddha often played on words. I've noticed this about spiritual teachers, that they, they like to play with language. And the Buddha evidently, I mean, I don't know Pali well enough to see it directly, but those Pali scholars who have read the discourses, you know, they say this happens quite a bit, where the Buddha will give a phrase or a sentence and there will be a couple different meanings depending on how you take the words. Both are relevant. Both are quite useful. So the other way this phrase is translated is um, intimacy with what's lovely. There's another meaning of these words, Kalyana Mita. Mita means friendship. And uh, Kalyana can mean lovely or lovely in an absolute sense, like what's truly beautiful truly wonderful. And it, it, I think, really uh, helps us understand spiritual friendship. 
it isn't just about uh, like trying to find the right person, but it, which is important, like trying, uh, making an effort to have friends who are interested in the practice, who have developed their practice, developed their minds, trained their minds to be mindful. That's part of it. But part of it is, no matter who we're around, learning to recognize the lovely. And I find this especially challenging for me. And you know, some people are relatively good at seeing the beautiful or the lovely, like not being confused by people and their relatively unskillful conditioning, able to not be confused by that, and to notice those moments when the person's really skillful. You know, they're coming from a wise place. They're coming from a loving place. And others of us, you know, we tend to notice when the people are off. <laughs> you know, oh, they just don't understand, or, you know, or they're just in a bad place right now. So it isn't even that we're negative about it, but, but it's just a matter of what our mind tends to notice. And it's good to, you know, it's good to be discriminating and to notice when somebody's off or somebody's coming from a negative place or whatever. But it's equally, and maybe even more importantly for most of us, to be able to intuit the beauty or the loveliness, the wisdom, and the people we're around, no matter who we're around. I often used to joke with some of my close friends, you know, um, you know, and some people here might really feel like George W. Bush was a great president or a good president, but I, I didn't like him as a politician. And, uh, but I often kind of kidded that I could imagine him uh, a really lovely qualities coming out around his daughters. I could see that. I, you know, I didn't observe it. You know, I didn't watch enough news. But I'm guessing that, that I could, if I were around enough, that I could probably see some of those enlightened or wholesome qualities being expressed a kind of unconditioned, unconditional kindness or patience or forgiveness, you know. Remember back in the early years of his first term, I think, his daughters were caught drinking when they were underage. Maybe some of you remember that news story. And, you know, no parent would want to be embarrassed by his teenage daughters. And, you know, you can imagine them both, you know, negative qualities being expressed, but maybe wholesome qualities being expressed. So no matter who we're around, no matter who we're thinking about, just to have that attitude or that inclination to notice what's lovely and to align with it, like to let that be our teacher or let that be our inspiration or support us. So we don't have to sort of wait until we happen to be able to be best buddies with the Dalai Lama in order to be inspired, but, you know, we can use the people we're around, the partners that we have, the friends that we have, the community, like the common ground community that we have. It may not be perfect, but there are enlightened qualities being expressed even now, you know, in a group like this. You know, some people right now, their mind is relatively, the heart is relatively pure. And that can be inspiring. And it really goes to the, the definition of Sangha. This morning, you know, once a quarter, we do the traditional recitation of the three refuges and the five precepts. And it, it's a traditional way. Since the time of the Buddha, or shortly after the time the Buddha started teaching, it became the way that somebody would acknowledge this inner commitment to this path of awakening, using these teachings to free the heart and mind from its self-centered conditioning, to go beyond that self-centered conditioning, that the view of self uh, apart from everything else. And so we did that. We do it once a quarter, uh, at least here at Common Ground, as a formal community event. And uh, so I mentioned you know, this about Sangha. You know, it's easy to hear these three refuges and the, just to stick with the surface meaning like the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. These are the three gems in Buddhism or the three refuges. So we think of the Buddha superficially as this person, this wonderful teacher who lived 2,600 years ago, was able to articulate how the mind and heart works in such a way that 
other people could hear the teachings and work directly with their own minds and discover the same kind of freedom that the Buddha realized in his life. And generation by generation, all the way here to this place in Minneapolis, these teachings, this articulation of how the mind is, how the mind gets conditioned, how the mind can be free of its conditioning, it's still relevant. I mean, they're not dated, these teachings. It's quite amazing. And so we do want to respect the Buddha as a historic person. But we don't want to miss the point. And the Buddha was very clear about this in his teachings. Not to get fixated on the person. You know, the Buddha, before he died, he said, if you understand the teachings, that's the Buddha. What I'm pointing to is the Buddha. And he's pointing to this awakened state. He's pointing to the mind, at least in a moment, that's free of its self-centered conditioning, not confused by its self-centered conditioning. We all have a lot of self-centered conditioning. But we don't have to be confused by it. In some moments, right, we're really confused by our self-centered conditioning. And we get ourselves in a really tight place. But not in every moment. Right? That's what I meant earlier, that in some moments, people are expressing enlightened qualities, awakened qualities, like a, a relatively pure friendliness, or kindness, or compassion, or happiness, joy, or equanimity. And if we're sensitive, we'll notice that. Whether it's this heart or mind that's expressing it, or the person next to us, or the person on TV, or wherever. So. Uh, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in that possibility in this moment of recognizing that, you know, the awakened qualities, whether we notice it in ourselves or in another. That's the Buddha. And the Dhamma is a reminder that we're, we're recognizing it here and now. The Dhamma points to this moment, the only moment when awakened qualities can be expressed. Because otherwise we turn it into something idealistic like, Someday, I'll be able to express enlightened qualities. But that day will never happen. It will always be in this moment. You know, We have to look. We have to practice being sensitive to this moment, because it's only going to be in the moment that awakened, beautiful qualities are realized or expressed. So we have the Buddha, the awakenedness, as Ajahn Sumedho sometimes says. You know, it's a nice word, awakenedness, if you want to put it into a noun. That's, 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 the, that's the ultimate um, refuge. And here and now is the place, Dhamma is the place that that refuge is realized. So we take refuge there. And then we take refuge in the Sangha. So this is where I was going with this part of the talk, that Sangha really means I mean, traditionally it means those who have formally undertaken the practice, like a monk or a nun, for example. And, you know, because in a way they symbolize a, a monk an, uh, or a nun or a renunciate, they symbolize sort of total commitment to this path of awakening. They kind of are placeholders for that. But more, more specifically, Sangha is any moment when a human heart is expressing awakened qualities, you know, and that expression might look like kindness, or it might look like compassion, or it might look like a pure joy, a pure kind of joyful appreciation, or a deep equanimity. So that's, you know, that's like uh, the telltale sign of awakenedness <laughs> when we notice a pure joy being expressed in our heart around us pure kindness, pure compassion, pure equanimity. So in terms of spiritual community, in terms of spiritual friendship, you know, uh, when we're interacting with people, either we're going to notice awakened qualities like kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, or we'll notice non-awakened qualities like neediness, or anger, or kind of resignation, or you know, indifference, or any of the different agitated states of mind that we're capable of. So we either notice one or the other, or something in between, right? 
But in terms of spiritual community, all of it we can work with and, and really need to work with. So, you know, in a perfect world, our spiritual community, you know, in an ultimate sense, we'd be hanging out with people who only express the beautiful qualities. And we'd have that intimacy with what's lovely. But, you know, I think it's true that we could be around people who are only expressing, you know, pure qualities. But we could manifest very impure qualities. <laughs> like we could be, you know, win the lottery, the, the Buddhist lottery, and, and get an afternoon with the Dalai Lama or something like that, or your favorite enlightened teacher, if there are, are fully enlightened people around. But, you know, if we're in a bad mood, we might be irritated by them. <laughs> you know, their, their friendliness or their tenderness, it might be kind of great on our nerves. <laughs> you know, what's with this person? You know, we'd want to gossip, and then we'd just feel uncomfortable gossiping with the person. Or, You know, you can just imagine that. I've had this experience. I'm sure... You've had it, you know, even with our partners sometimes, you know, and they're in a really good place, really expansive place, you know, but we're not in that place. <laughs> and it can be irritating. <laughs> or, or we'll imagine that they're kind of pretending, you know, or something like that. So uh, whether that's true or not, like they're in a good place or not, isn't important, but inevitably when we're with people, or just even alone, you know, with ourselves alone, it hurts. It it's confusing, and that that can also be, uh, and then it's useful, and it's inevitable for us in terms of spiritual community. Sometimes you come to common ground, and you're just going to notice all the lovely things, and sometimes you come to common ground, and everything will irritate you. And uh, but we want to use it all. Like if it's the rubbing and scrubbing phase. Then we, we use that. It's like all we need to add to the fact that we're being irritated by whoever we're around, whatever community we happen to be in, whether we're at home with our family, our sisters and brothers, or parents, or with our partner, or in our own home, or friends we live with. When we get, when we uh, kind of come up against what's difficult for us, all we need to do is add a little bit of faith that it's possible to turn it around. That it doesn't have, that we can like use the irritation or use the, uh, the judgment, use the feeling of humiliation if that's what's on. It's like using that irritant, using that agitation as a cause to wake up, right? you know, going back to the three refuges. So the Buddha, you know, awakenness. So can we manifest that awakenness, that raw, open presence, that real presence, you know, with that yucky state, that humiliation, that irritation, that judgment that we might be feeling, that feeling of being apart, you know, if that's what we're feeling. Can we bring awakenness to the present moment. That's the Dhamma. The Buddha knowing the Dhamma. In that case is awakenness, knowing the sense, knowing that limited sense of the heart then. And you know, as a spiritual seeker, we can think that that's not right. We don't want to feel, you know, I want to feel enlightened. But we don't realize that the gateway to enlightenment, to freedom, is always here and now, the way it is, here and now. Which we always have, of course, right? So that ingredient we always have. What we don't always have is awakenness. And that takes something. That takes a little bit, at least, a little bit of faith that that's possible. Because if we don't have enough faith, we won't even imagine that we can be open, that we can bring this awakenness to the yucky feeling in this case. I mean, it's relatively easy for us to be inspired, you know, by reading the Dhamma book about, you know, some teacher's book about 
their experiences of freedom or their experiences of love or their experiences of wisdom insight and be really inspired but the real practice of course is going home whether we live alone or with others you know dealing with our pets and dealing with our partners and dealing with our roommates and dealing with our friends and dealing with our colleagues at work and dealing with our politicians and all the different you know this great web of relatedness these different relationships that we have you know, that's the Buddha taking refuge in Dhamma, the way it is. Awakeness, taking refuge, opening to the way it is, and practicing, manifesting these beautiful qualities of kindness, of compassion, of joy, appreciating what's beautiful, and equanimity, right? Because even when there's nothing we can do about suffering, our suffering, or another's, we can still express our intimacy, our capacity to be there in the moment with equanimity. That's what equanimity is. It's that capacity to stay close even when there's nothing we can do to make the moment any better. You know, like, you know, in a more global sense, you know, a lot of us, you know, are feeling um, touched by what's going on in the Gulf. And, you know, there's some things we can do, but in a lot of ways, we're impotent. We're just here watching, hearing about it, waiting, waiting for the experts, you know, to kind of fix it. And it may feel, it's easy to feel like, well, how do, how do I express, like we're part of this global community, how do I express, how do I support what's going on? How do I add something wholesome to the situation where something is happening that's not good? doesn't seem good at least. And so the way is to be intimate with equanimity, like to really, not that we have to look obsessively at the news, but when we do read the news, when we do see the pictures of the sea creatures being damaged by the oil or being killed by the oil or hear the politicians blaming one another or, you know, all the different stuff that's swirling around it. We can practice being intimate with equanimity. That is the expression of awakeness in a situation where we're not responsible necessarily, at least not in an obvious way, in a, in a big way, to fix it. It's not really our responsibility, but it is our responsibility not to close down, it is our responsibility not to dwell in negative states like blaming, like hating, like being afraid. That doesn't help anybody. What helps is to be able to stay close, to stay awake, to stay grounded in the way it is. I was talking with a good friend uh, earlier this afternoon and uh, one of the things that's come up, and we've talked about it before, is just, you know, and I know this, we, nobody really knows how things are going to unfold. And if you look through history, people often thought civilization was teetering on the edge. But anyway, it came up again in, in one of our conversations how, you know, boy, it sure seems like things could spin out of control. So what kind of work can we do so that if things do spin out of control, environmentally, politically, economically, in any way, you know, what kind of heart or mind can we cultivate in our practice, in our spiritual path, on our spiritual path, that would allow us to stay intimate, to stay useful, to uh, stay connected to freedom and ease and intimacy no matter how things happen or unfold. I mean, that's really, I find that, that useful because it, it really grounds my practice. It's relatively easy for those of us living in a pretty stable place like Minneapolis. Most of us have enough health and enough 
wealth, where we feel pretty safe and secure. We tend to have enough wholesome relationships, most of us, most of the time. But it may not always be so. And you know, back when you read the discourses of the Buddha, he was not, he was not shy about, you know, because often the monks and nuns, they also, I mean, even though they were living a pretty austere life, didn't have many possessions, they had a, they had a lot of mental heart training, you know, which gave them a lot of calm. They had reinforced, developed a lot of the wholesome qualities. They were quite respected, especially after a while in that society and treated well, not always, but often respected as, you know, followers of this famous, the Buddha became quite famous in his day. Um, so the Buddha would often have to remind the monks and nuns because they'd start feeling content uh, with their situation in life. Remind them that it won't always be so. They don't actually know what's down the road. To inspire them to even, even though they had really wholesome qualities developed, that why not develop them more? You know, so maybe we, you know, relative to our friends, maybe we have the capacity to be quite friendly in our life in most situations. Or the capacity to be, you know, authentically compassionate, willing to be close to suffering, our own suffering, the suffering of those around us relative to our friends. Or to be able to appreciate the beauty around us in a way that sort of stood out. But why not develop those qualities even more? You know, to be able to be even more equanimous when we're in a situation where there's nothing we can do and it's not so good. More kind, more compassionate. To be able to have more joy, appreciative joy, when things are going well for those around us. Instead of a feeling of like, boy, why, doesn't, why don't good things happen to me? So the idea is that we want to develop it to the nth degree so that basically we're squeezing out, we're uprooting all of the tendencies to greed and aversion and fear and denial and distraction. So that even if the so-called perfect wave arose, like I mentioned maybe last week, I don't know if it was Sunday night, but my wife... Went, rented uh, 2012, one of those blockbuster films, which I very much enjoyed, <laughs> much to my dismay. <laughs> I looked at Wynn when, when it was there on our table, and I said, 2012? I think that's what it's called. Is that right? 2012? Anyway, one of the scenes, it's, it's like one of these total catastrophes on Earth. Uh, I guess the Sun, uh, what is that energy that the sun shoots out, subtle energy related to the sunspots? Yeah, anyway, it screwed up the earth. Something happened on the sun, screws up the earth, the earth gets totally out of whack, and, uh, and there's one scene where California sort of lifts up, just slides right into the ocean. <laughs> and you see it because somebody just happened to take off right before it happened. And the runway is sort of disappearing as the plane is taking off. It was really a hoot. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's nice to, to just like realize that things are a lot more uncertain than we want to imagine. I mean, just because things have been stable, they may not always be stable. And, and you know, in Buddhism, people are often encouraged to take a vast view. So even if this lifetime is quite stable, you know, there may be a lifetime sometime down the road where really difficult things might arise for us. So we want that mind, that heart, the kind of conditioning that no matter how big the wave is, you know, no matter how uh, terrible the situation is, we could trust our heart, our mind to relate skillfully, to respond skillfully, to actually be skillful in the moment not get lost in fear, not get lost in greed, not get lost in denial. I mean, wouldn't that be good? And the thing is, as we develop that kind of heart, something also develops, which is really the, the mind really trusts its conditioning. 
And that's that's a really it's like the only real stability in our human existence is this trust, this deepening trust that uh, there's a kind of clarity or wisdom that's becoming less and less confused by our self-centered conditioning. We still may have self-centered habits, greed and aversion and denial and distraction, but we're less confused by that. And, And then it's like we don't need to have anxiety about what the next moment may bring because there's some intuition that the kind of conditioning that's sort of alive operating is to be trusted. That no matter what's around the corner for us, there's some sort of faith that the mind or heart is going to be able to respond skillfully. It may not be what we want. We don't, we're not in control of what's around the corner for us. But we're able to trust that we're going to relate, we're going to respond as skillfully as possible. You know that feeling. I'm sure you've had that feeling in different moments of your life where you feel well prepared for something. Like you've really done the training and you're really ready for what's going to happen as much as you can imagine. But this is like doing that not just for one particular situation, you know, where you've you know, you've trained and you're really ready for this backpacking trip or you've, you know, really, you've got this meeting at work and you're really on top of the information and you've got your, you've got your PowerPoint all set up and, you know, ducks in a row. But it's like, it's like doing that really on a foundational level where the, the sort of conditioning of the mind is really that's your ducks in a row, that you're, you're totally attuned to where there's still self-centered conditioning and you've got your eye on it so that when it gets triggered, you won't be confused by it. Oh, that's just that feeling of neediness. Oh, that's just the feeling of fear. Oh, that's just the feeling of not being good enough. Oh, that's just the feeling of wanting people to like me. Right? So that stuff, you know, for most of us is going to be coming up for a long time stuff. But that doesn't mean we have to be so confused by it. We, if we're aware of it, we won't be overwhelmed by it. We won't be sort of lost in it. And not only that, if we can, if we can sort of not get caught in it, it, keeps, it kind of keeps us awake, open, for wholesome conditioning to arise. It may not be the predominant habit, that if we're aware of the predominant habit, the negative habit, it allows for less developed habits to get a chance to arise, and we water them with attention. Oh, there's the habit of patience. Let me pay attention to that. Oh, there's the habit of forgiveness. Let me pay attention to that one. Oh, there's the habit of, of fearlessness. Let me look at that. Let me water that with attention. Let me bring that into the world. And so um, I just want to finish up by just in my own life and, you know, it's part of this tradition, a big part of this tradition. So much of this practice is learned in our communities, our partnerships, our friendships, our interactions in communities like Common Ground, even going on a retreat for nine days or for a long weekend or even a day-long retreat. We enter into a community for a period of time. And, and the thing about spiritual communities, and you know, a lot of our partnerships are spiritual communities, at least in moments, and sometimes our families are spiritual communities. So I don't mean just formal spiritual communities like Common Ground, but communities where, to some degree at least, there's sort of shared values, wholesome shared values, consciously shared values like being wakeful, being mindful, being kind. The real advantage of these kinds of communities is it's like normal life but concentrated. That's really the definition of a spiritual community. It's not like bad things don't happen, conflict doesn't happen. You know, there are a lot there's been a lot of conflict at common ground, you know, in the leadership and just generally. But it's like everything gets concentrated. And, and 
the, so things happen, and there's the opportunity not just to get really hurt, but to learn a lot. Because in a sort of concentrated container, like on retreat or at Common Ground, because of the nature of the organization and the nature of the values of the organization, we bring a lot of energy. We bring a lot of commitment. We care a lot about it, just like we care a lot about our intimate relationships in our family of origin community, right? We bring a lot of care to it, a lot of commitment to it. So that's why things hurt, you know, when someone says something to us. It hurts more than if we just someone who we don't care about says it, you know, or a community that we're less committed to, less connected to. So that's part of the concentration. And then part of the concentration are these shared values that, you know, in a community, for example, like Common Ground, where, you know, so much of what we do is regurgitate these wholesome teachings in different ways, in our conversations, in Dharma talks like this, you know, and just the symbols around the room. You know, we're constantly reminding ourselves of our shared values, like wakefulness, or, you know, awakenness, or kindness, patience. And so we really care, you know, and we're constantly being reminded. And so even if there is conflict, and even if we get a little bit uh, thrown off by it and, and react in negative ways, it's like the, the juxtaposition between the sort of pain we're feeling and the anger we're feeling or the humiliation we're feeling and this ongoing regurgitation of these wholesome teachings and shared values it just like really stands out. It's like hard to miss, you know. And it, it just reminds us, well, maybe maybe there's another way. And this is often painful, you know. People think, oh, oh I'll get involved at Common Ground, I'll become a volunteer, I'll keep showing up, I'll make some friendships. And part of the spiritual community really is supportive in the way that, on the surface at least, we want to be supportive. There are a lot of nice people who tend to come to places like Common Ground. You know, people can bring up things in discussions here because, generally speaking, there's a lot of respect and uh, confidentiality that just, without asking people to be respectful or to be confidential, people just tend to be that way in this setting. And when you walk out and it's crowded, People tend to be really kind, you know, and sort of creating space for one another and holding doors. And so there is that kind of support. But there's this whole other part, too, which is, you know, the inevitable rubbing and scrubbing and bumping up against each other's, you know, self-centered conditioning. And sometimes it gets exaggerated precisely because we care because we like this place so much and because we get dependent on it. And it's inevitable. I mean, there's even though in general the path is not about dependency, the path is about letting go of attachment, letting go of dependency, becoming independent. But to become independent of what's truly unwholesome, it might be useful to get attached or dependent on something that's relatively more wholesome. So that's part of what we bring here, kind of like, oh, I found an island in the storm, Common Ground Meditation Center, you know, a place to be around nice people. So we bring a kind of attachment, and it's going to cause problems. Because we care so much, then when we see that everything's not perfect here, that they're actual human beings here, <laughs> you know, with both wholesome and unwholesome conditioning, we can get really disappointed, you know, Mark watched 2012. <laughs> Wynn rented that? Wynn? <laughs> you know, and you, you can think, oh my God. I mean, I can imagine them watching Bill Moyers, but. <laughs> you know, we can feel really disappointed. And, and, then, and then, you know, all kinds of things can get triggered, like feeling betrayed or. Or feel like, well, I'm going to go act out, you know, if they act out like that. <laughs> so, 
So that's part of the that's part of what we learn, you know, committing and sort of jumping into the fire and, and, and jumping in with sort of idealistic notions. We will get burned, but it's actually a pretty good place to get burned and be disappointed. Because of this regurgitation of our values of forgiveness, of patience, of paying attention, of not believing the self-centered conditioning that does get triggered in our minds, but just seeing it as something that's impersonal, but it is the way that it is now. So I thought it'd be nice to save the last 15 minutes just to hear from people. And you know, we've all been involved in different communities. I'm sure a lot of you have learned things, both the painful way and hopefully sometimes the not so painful way. Are any questions that you have about the talk tonight? So what comes to mind? Yeah, can you say your name again? Paula. Paula. And um, since we're talking about community and so forth, how do you deal with people's contradictions of, you know, they have an opinion and they're virtuous in this position, but then you see them contradicted in the next moment? Yeah, well, the easiest way, of course, is to, and this is not easy, but we want to see that same inconsistency in our own mind. Um, because it's actually a deep insight into uh, anatta, this not-self, or the impersonal nature of everything. When we see that, that uh, how our personality, how our mind states and attitudes manifest in a given moment are arising out of the particulars, the causes and conditions of that moment. And Paula in one moment is like this, and Paula in another moment is like that. And the amazing thing is, the truly amazing thing is, how we don't notice the inconsistency in ourselves. We do tend to notice it in other people, especially if you're like me and you have a more critical mind. Um, we tend to really pick that up because it disturbs us, like, you know, just that inconsistency. But it's probably just as true with ourselves. But our mind has an amazing capacity to cover up that inconsistency you know, how friendly and loving we can be. And then in the next moment, we can really be, uh, you know, like wanting to tear somebody's eyes out. I mean, not that we actually would, but just that, that kind of real revenge and just noticing how we want something bad to happen to people. I mean, I really, I think one of the telltale signs of a deep, consistent practice over many years is that kind of honesty. Like, I notice that all the time. For example, I'll notice people who I, I truly love and respect, uh, Dharma, other Dharma teachers, other Buddhist meditation teachers, who I truly love and respect. And I'll notice a real kind of competition at times. And, uh, and I'm happy to say this because I'm now at the point where, even though at times it still hurts, so it's more than just noticing it, and it's actually having an effect in my mind. But I'm at the point where I trust my mind or heart enough not to act it out very much. And that is like deeply satisfying that the practice has unfolded to such a degree that I have that confidence that I'm not going to act out something that I don't trust when I have wisdom. But I do trust when my mind is clouded. You know, I do believe it. That whatever, however, that competition or that uh, fear of them uh, might manifest, and so just to see that, like in one moment, I can be so uh, authentically grateful for my relationship with them, or just uh, in awe of their wholesome qualities, and another moment, sort of, you know, being fearful or being competitive or being needy in some way. And so we want to see that inconsistency in our own heart, in our own conditioning. Not to put ourselves down, but to actually begin to have a more spacious relationship with our conditioning. Oh, okay. Here's the angry Pala. Here's the beautiful Pala. You know? Here's the wise Pala. Here's the narrow-minded Pala. And just all the different manifestations of our conditioning. And then all of a sudden, we don't take any of it personally. because. Clearly, there's nobody doing this. It's just a matter of the particular conditions triggering different strands of the, the sort of web of conditioning that's 
in a sense, who we are. We aren't a pala, a person, a, a center. We're just this collection of different um, conditions, you know, different sort of ways of expressing, ways of relating. And who we are in any moment isn't because there's somebody behind the steering wheel deciding, okay, I'm going to go this way, I'm going to be this kind of person. It's just, but that's what that's what the conditioning does. It claims whatever expression of the personality is, we claim it, and that's the way we make it look consistent. But when we have a more spacious, mindful attention, we see it's not consistent at all, and then we can put up better with the inconsistencies we see with the people around us. Yeah, Stan. When I hear you. you I hear you say the word me. What I do in my mind is I take it as, I translate it as grasping or clinging or what the other words we use for it, and which then means to self and means to lots of suffering. So I'm hearing this use me in that sense rather than, but we all have needs. We right. want belonging, we want nice things, but it just comes, you know, we have too much grasping on that. Yeah, that's, a, I think, a good clarification. And, you know, the trouble with the more technical words like clinging and grasping is because they're more clinical, we can kind of think we understand it. But when we, it's nice to play that edge a little bit because you're right that we're all, we all have needs. It's just natural, natural to have both social needs, emotional needs, as well as our physical needs. Um, but the neediness, you know, it's like uh, it's the identification. It's like we've created somebody then who has the needs, and so it it gets entrenched in a way. So technically, then we that entrenchment we call grasping or clinging, as Dan said. Um, but we want to make it. We want to kind of ground it in our actual experience, as opposed to oh, that you know, like a conceptual map. Okay, that's called clinging. That's called grasping. But we know viscerally that feeling of being needy. And it's not the fact that, that we're a human being and we appreciate physical affection, or we're a human being and we appreciate social interactions, or we're a human being and we appreciate having a good meal. But it's the, it's the selfing around those needs that we're really pointing to. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that, Stan. Other thoughts people have or questions, stories from your own? Life around community, what you've learned. Yeah, Lurie. Yeah, here's a story from today. Uh, I actually love the quarterly gathering after watering afterwards, um, feeling uh, because I'm uh, very much in charge of the garden outside, feeling personally responsible for every single weed <laughs> and maple tree. Everything <laughs> <laughs> that hasn't been done. Uh, by the time I left, and um, we went home in this alone, and, and just felt myself going back and forth from feeling judged to feeling, you know, and then I would do you know, some loving kindness for the regurgitation is an interesting word, but yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then feeling resentful, and then feeling incredibly grateful to Julian for keeping this building running, and then feeling really grateful to you and Wynn for giving me a cap because it was really sunny out and really kind of back and forth all afternoon and, and trying to find some still things to do like, you know, at one point saying, you know, I was sad and, and kind of noticing it and saying, okay, how about something else? Yeah. You know, so I found something more skillful to do. And um, so... You know, it is very true that all those things will come up, and yet the the reminders are coming back to the things that are healthy, um, you know, happening. And then, and then, so I need to come tonight. You know, uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and thanks for sharing this because it's like a perfect example of what I said about. How when you really commit, whether it's to a marriage or partnership, intimate par uh, relationship, or like Lori and Susan over here, and Jenny and Susan Wilkins, 
really committed to running the renovation project of our, our parking lot and, and uh, grounds over the last couple of years. It's, it's really been a long haul and still kind of in the middle of it. It is, it's like a concentrated practice. So, you know, in your two years and however much longer it lasts, it's like you've got a lot of practice because <laughs> it's the commitment in our relationships that helps us learn. And it's the absence of commitment that keeps us from learning from life, generally. So I remember once I, I, I had the good fortune to just be around when Harada Roshi, one of the senior Zen teachers from Japan, he's a <coughs> abbot of a monastery in southern Japan, and comes to the West and teaches both, I think, in Europe and the United States. And he's got a place in Whigby Island um, in Puget Sound, I think. And uh, he was giving a talk at Spirit Rock. I just happened to be doing a program there. And I, and I went to his talk and had a really amazing presence. And afterwards, people, you know, it's, it was Jack Cornfield's Monday Night Group. So there were hundreds of people there. And some, you know, were, had really long time practice. And some people were just kind of coming in for the first time. And, you know, my judgment is that this one woman who asked the question was probably pretty new in her practice. And she, you know, kind of went on and on about what she had done and talked about having done PM practice, which, you know, I have sort of some judgments about. <laughs> and just asked, you know, you know, what should I do? And, and he just, I thought, gave this great answer through his translator. You know, just said uh, something really powerful and simple. It doesn't matter what you do. Just do it completely, wholeheartedly. You know, do it with your whole heart. That's what's important. And uh, and I think what he meant, I mean, it's like me expanding on how I understood what he said, is that when we're fully committed, we're going to learn. Even if what we're committed to is sort of not really right for some reason, like... Uh, you know, this whole idea of renovating the parking lot and putting in more, you know, it's just total waste of money and somebody's ego trip or, you know, but there you are, you've committed, you've taken on the responsibility, even if your own intention initially was corrupt, like I'm just doing it so people recognize how competent I am or something like that. Either way, just because of the commitment and if there's enough of this, you know, I, I was being provocative using the word regurgitation. This, this sort of remembering of the shared values, it's like there will be a lot of learning in exactly the way that this afternoon was for you. You know, just learning so much about your conditioning in those two or three hours between when you left and when you came back and how priceless that is. I mean, it would have been so easy to just get absorbed in Huffington Post or, you know, and not really learn anything about anything. Um, but to really see that how suffering can arise basically out of nowhere, how joy and deep gratitude and uh, really wholesome, beautiful states can arise seemingly out of nowhere, how our whole life can swing between heaven and hell. And we don't actually need life. It just happens there. We can just sit, you know, and go. And those of you who've been on a lot of retreats know this experience so well. This is one of the things. I mean, spiritual retreats are even a more concentrated form of learning. So anyway, thanks, Laurie, for sharing your life with us in that way. Any last comments for the group? Time for a sh something short. Yeah, Mamie.
and you kind of covered a lot of it, but there's a great diversity in Buddhism. There's a great diversity even in Vipassana or Theravada Buddhism, and just in terms of how the teachings are presented. And we have to appreciate that there may be a lot of wholesome things. First of all, it may not be wholesome. It could be one of those places where you know, it's just not wholesome for whatever reason. But let's just assume it is wholesome. But it just may not be for us. Just because a place is wholesome, they have really beautiful shared values, doesn't mean there's a karmic connection or that there's just, it's a good fit. And they're just like, there are a lot of people who are really nice, but that doesn't mean they should be our intimate partner. You know, so part of it isn't, it isn't just about going anywhere. Part of it is really finding a place that really makes sense. And it is w worthwhile to shop around a little bit. And, and just because we feel like, oh, these guys are really nice, doesn't mean it's the right place for us. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's just how it is. And then the, the last thing I'll just say about that is Buddhism has come to the West in different ways. Some of the ways it's come is Asian teachers have come here. When they come here, they bring a lot of the cultural package that Buddhism was contained in for centuries. Other strands of Buddhism came here by Westerners going to Asia. They did a, a pretty profound distillation where they worked hard at taking, and not in a perfect way, of course, taking what they thought was the essence of what the Buddha taught and trying to leave behind a lot of the Asian cultural attributes. And inevitably, they left some things behind that they probably shouldn't have. But that's more the Vipassana tradition coming out of Theravada Buddhism. When you look at how it ar arrived here, there are a few exceptions, but predominantly, a lot of people went in the West went to Asia, a lot through the Peace Corps, a lot just because they were traveling around the world, and got interested in Buddhism, some for a long time, stayed in the monastery, some just sort of dabbled, but eventually they came back and they brought back what they learned, and over and over again this happened, and then we get this tradition. And, you know, there are some shadows to this tradition in the fact that we don't have a lot of rituals, you know, and human beings generally like rituals, but there's a shadow to rituals too. And so one of the things that Kamagam were doing is we're sort of creating slowly rituals, but they're going to be our rituals. We're not sort of taking old rituals from another culture and trying to make them meaningful. But there are advantages and disadvantages to both. You know, people go to some of the Tibetan or some of the Zen tradition is that way too, because there's a lot of Zen teachers that came from Japan and Korea to the States. You know, and they get really entranced by the rituals. Uh, because they're, they are intoxicating. That's the point. That's what rituals are supposed to do. They're supposed to intoxicate the mind so we let go of everything else. They give us something, you know, there's the smell of incense, there's the bells, there's the gongs, there's the this and the that's. And it's like intoxicating. And we feel like we can let go of some stuff. But it can cause problems too. There's shadows to that. So there's a, you know, fortunately there's quite a diversity now, even in the cities here in terms of Buddhist practice. And people can shop around a little bit and find a place that feels good. And then even though you may have one place that feels good, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go experience really good teachers. You know, you can do a little dabbling, but generally speaking, it's good to have a home once you've shopped around a little bit, at least for a while, you know, and then maybe later you realize, this is my home for a while. You know, so this is, un this is, we can't avoid this problem in the West. We, we have too much information. So we want to take advantage of it, but we have to be aware that the great shadow for us, all of us, is dabbling. So just be aware of that. It's sort of spiritual dilettantes. You know, we've got our malas, we've got our taras, we've got our sort of Thai Buddhas, and we've got our... Talk, you know, we've got everything. <laughs> That's just how it is. 
So we need to leave it here. Take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath, deep breath or two. Noticing the silence behind the words. And the stillness in the body and mind. And remembering our deepest aspiration to live and practice in a way that is a cause for deep happiness and peace for ourselves for our loved ones, and for all beings. To live in a way that supports the liberation, the safety, and happiness of all beings. May this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.